Father, we, uh, we're desperately in need of you this morning. Um, we don't always feel it, and, um, but somewhere deep inside we know that, um, that without you things are not right and things are not well, and we want to align ourselves with who you are and what you're wanting to do in us both now and in the years to come. And so, Father, we just ask that you would take our hearts and minds and that you would center them on you, that we would find ourselves continuing in a spirit of worship open to the very beauty and power of your word for us and in us because of and to the glory of our Savior and our King, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, um, I'm going to go ahead and read our passage from this morning, which comes from Acts, Acts chapter 19, verse 23 through 34. You can follow on the screen as, as I read. This is a narrative of uh, the early church, um, particularly about the Apostle Paul. It starts in verse 23 saying, About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, which was Christians. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades, and he said to them, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only is Ephesus, but almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great number of people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger. Not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of our great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all of Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were with Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul finished, I'm sorry, but when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And this is the word of the Lord. Well, we are in a uh, series on the catechism. Uh, where it's a lengthy series where we have an opportunity for you to follow along and allow the deep things of God to become more and more embedded into your soul. We call the series Living and Knowing the Truth because as we more and more intentionally understand the foundational elements of our faith, we find ourselves being able to live it out in our families, in our community, and with our neighbors. So this is um, what uh, many basketball folks understand as the fundamentals. I played basketball in high school, and every time we started the new season, in the middle of the season, and at the end of the season, we always worked on fundamentals. Why? Because fundamentals are the first thing to go. 
which means that if you're playing basketball, you, you always practice the two-hand pass, right? Before you practice the behind-the-back pass, you know? Everyone wants to do the behind-the-back pass, but very few people want to actually do the two-hand pass back and forth, right, 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 got that, got that. Everyone wants to do the hook shot, not the jump shot. People aren't super interested in dribbling just boringly back and forth between cones. They want to do between the legs, a little juke and jive, you know? That's what people want to do. We just finished March Madness. That's, you see how we're pulling this together? <laughs> Y'all are just in mourning. Um, but that's the fundamentals, right? That's, that's the basics. And what happens is that when we find ourselves missing the basics, we find ourselves missing out on what holds our faith together when things do not go well, when things get confusing and difficult and hard. And not only that, but we don't have a firm foundation from which to be able to jump into areas of mission and ministry and transformation because the ground is wobbly and life is difficult. So that's what we're doing. We're in an essentials, foundational elements kind of series. And today, we talk about maybe one of the most important elements of the foundations of our faith, and that is sin and idolatry. I know, this morning you woke up and you're like, I hope we're preaching on sin and idolatry this morning. <laughs> well, it is the end of Lent, so it's ironically, we're coming to a very, uh, the crucible of the impact and magnitude of what sin and, and uh, idolatry look like. And so this morning, this is how we're going to walk through it. We're going to talk about what is sin, and more specifically, we're going to focus on what is idolatry. What kind of idols do we worship? How do we identify them? And lastly, how do we dismantle these idols of our hearts? So let's jump in. What is sin? And more specifically, what is idolatry? So what is sin? Let's go ahead and put question 16 up there. It's there. What is sin? Read the answer together with me. Sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created, rebelling against him by living without reference to him not being or doing what he requires in the law, resulting in our death and disintegration of all creation. It's rejecting and ignoring God. Rejecting and ignoring God. One of the things you're going to notice as we talk about sin is that sin is first and foremost relational. If you're like me and you grew up in the church, when you were a kid, someone looked at you and said, sin, young man, young woman, is, is missing the mark, right? That's a very good understanding in light of how the scripture describes it. But, but fundamentally, and if you look through the whole uh, journey through the scripture, sin is most, first and foremost, relational. It is first and foremost, rebellion. It's re relational rejection, which is why in this definition you see it's, it's rejection and ignoring. It's rebelling against someone, not just some rules. Now, we spent the last 10 weeks, well, a little bit longer than that, talking through the Ten Commandments, which are indeed the laws of God, which he, through his perfect character, invites us to live out. But if you're thinking primarily of what sin looks like as like, am I doing right things or wrong things? Is it primarily the things I, wrong things I said or, or the bad thing I did? then you're actually missing the depth, the, the full, the fulsome nature of what sin really is. And that is, it's a rejection of God. It's a pushing away of him relationally. It's living, I love how it says it, it says living without reference to him. It's living as though he's not really who he says he is. Living like he's not really even there. Sin is not just, okay, I, I need to, I'm doing bad things, ah, I'm sinning. It's, it's living in a way that says God is not really the center of all things. He's not who he says he is. 
He isn't even in the picture. So if that's a great, and it's a terrific definition of sin, by the way, this is why it's important, genuinely important to memorize these things because you're going to find yourself going like, am I sinning here? And it's like, well, I don't know. Am I rejecting and ignoring God? Am I in rebellion against him? Am I actually following his laws? That, that helps you know, where, where is my soul? Where is my heart? But what is idolatry? We're going to spend more time here. What is idolatry? Let's read this together. Idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator for our hope and happiness, significance, and security. This is really, really important. Not all sin is idolatry, okay? Not all sin is idolatry, but every sin is rooted in idolatry. Not all sin is idolatry, but every sin we commit is rooted in idolatry. In a sense, idolatry is always the sin under the sin, which is why Paul connects it all the time. He connects the gospel and idolatry all the time. There is nothing other than God. There's something other than God. Idolatry is there's something other than God that I'm trusting in, that I'm hoping in, that I'm depending on for my hope and happiness, my significance and security. And this is not just a religious thing. In, uh, in Romans chapter 1, uh, Paul begins his great treatise on the Christian faith, and he talks about the world. That includes all of us and all of those who have no interest in religion, paganism, or anything. He says in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, then in 24, 25, he says, For although they, the world, all men, knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves. Because, check this out, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And what did we do? We worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is forever blessed. Amen. All right, I've got a little illustration. Steve, can you bring that card over to me? Um, every illustration when you start talking about things falls apart, right? So that's my disclaimer. Uh, but this one's pretty awesome, I think. Um, I'm counting on it not falling apart. So here we have, can everyone roughly see? This is God as he is. Let there be light. It's pretty cool, huh? <laughs> Couldn't do that 100 years ago. This is God, so this is God as he is. perfect and holy, good and kind towards us. And he said, all things belong to me, all things pertain to me. And mankind looked and said, that is really great in the scope of all, I see, I see what that is, but that is actually not what I'm going to agree with. I, I, I'm in relationship, but I, I'm not so sure that this is what I want. Instead, what happened, and this is, this is the great exchange. This is what idolatry is. The great exchange is, we said, well, actually, we're going to do this, and we're just going to put you down here. I mean, you're, you're around maybe, but, but this, this I am sure of. This I can count on. This is, this is my idol, and, and I, can, 
I can maybe trust in it. I'm not sure if I can trust in you, but I, I'm going to exchange who you say you are for, for this. And this is fundamentally what idolatry is. Now, again, we spent a bunch of time in the Ten Commandments. And if you remember, the first commandment is about idolatry, right? You shall have no other gods before me. What's fascinating about it is that it's impossible to break any of two through ten without breaking the first one first, right? Let me illustrate it this way. I preached a few weeks on not, shall not lie. Why do we lie? Well, we lie because we're covering up for something that is more important than the truth, right? We talked about that. It's the idea of like, I'm having to protect something, the opinion of someone or the perspective of someone or something I did that's maybe not so awesome, and I'm trying to protect it because it's so important. It is an ultimate thing for me, and so I will now lie. Well, if this wasn't an idol of mine, if this wasn't so important to me, of course, I wouldn't lie. I would just be able to tell the truth because it doesn't really matter. But this matters exceedingly. It matters totally. That's what idolatry looks like. Therefore, every sin of commission and every sin of omission is rooted in the, the veneration, the worship, the serving of an idol. There's a substitute that says, not you, but it, him, her, that disposition. I must be justified by it. So therefore, idolatry is a shifting of trust. You see the definition? The definition said, it is taking trust and shifting that trust. It's what we saw in the passage. We have an entire community of people who are basing their life around Artemis, the great goddess who basically was prosperity, fertility, and particularly wealth. And Ephesus became incredibly wealthy, partly because of this enormous temple. And people would come and they would offer sacrifices to Artemis because they wanted the wealth and the goodness. The great news is that all the, art, all the artisans that you got to hear, in the, they started realizing, wait, everyone's coming here. You know what they'd be great if they could walk away with? Merch. <laughs> Souvenirs. This is not a new idea for us at concert halls. Like, it's like we can make these silver idols of Artemis and, and, and they can walk away with them and they can continue to pray and offer sacrifices to her so that they will get what they want, which is wealth, stability, growth of income. Now, that seems really like um, base, you know, like, ugh. Those people who, who used to bow down and worship gods, oh, we're, we're so sophisticated now. We, we've so passed that idea, that notion that we would actually lay down or sacrifice something to just an idol. And yet the whole world does it. It's what Paul's saying in, in Romans 1 there, that we aren't just, we didn't just exchange it, we actually have begun to worship it. This is why there's no such thing as an atheist, right? You understand that. If you're saying, like, I don't believe in God, bottom line is you're worshiping something. Everyone's worshiping. Everyone's worshiping. Idolatry is shifting our trust, transitioning our trust from God to something else. Now, you notice that the actual accusation is really, really powerful, right? The accusation that the, the silversmith makes against Paul in verse 26, he says, this Paul, this dude, he has persuaded and turned away a great many people. And this is what Paul's saying. This is the best testimony ever. Like this is what you hope people will say about you. Saying that gods made with hands are not gods. That they're not the real thing. It's an incredibly accurate testimony of everything Paul ever said and kept saying. He kept saying, yeah, this thing, 
Whatever it is that you, it's not, it's not actually a God at all. You're, you're wasting your time. He's just echoing the prophets who say, you can't make something out of wood and one end, burn one end for fire and food and take the other end and carve it up and bow down to it. That makes no sense. And Paul's just calling it that. And he's saying, this, this is still what's going on, guys. And if Paul was standing right here today, he'd say, this is still what's going on, guys. It just doesn't look like silver and gold in that same exact way. John Calvin said that we are idol-making factories. He actually says, I think I have the quote on your sheet there, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. We make idols faster than we can dismantle them, or so it would seem. So what is an idol? Uh, This is, in my humble opinion, the best treaties on idolatry out there. Now, I can be argued, a lot of this comes from other great books that were written, but this is Tim Keller's book called Counterfeit Gods. It was written in 2009, and I am not kidding. If you have not read this book and you want to understand idolatry, this is the book to read. Uh, Most of, a lot of the thinking, even that comes to some of the things I've been working on, comes out of some of the thinking. This changed the way I viewed sin. If you're still thinking that sin is about how you're just trying to not do bad things or there's a, there's a set of laws you're just trying to follow, it's far bigger than that. It's far more insipid than that. So I truly recommend this. But I want to read a couple quotes out of, out of this book in particular. I think these are great definitions, and I think this is very important. So he says, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything more important to you than God. Exchange. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. That's that's what an idol is. And we think that idols are are normally just bad things, but that's, that's not the case. He says, we think that idols are bad things, but that is almost never the case. The great, the good, sorry, the greater the good, the more likely we are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. Anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential in your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. It can be family and children or career and making money or achievement and critical acclaim or saving face and social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality and virtue, or even success in the Christian ministry. When your meaning in life is to fix someone else's life, We can call it codependency, but it is really idolatry. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. And here's the thing. When idols are threatened... They fight back. 
This is one of the great ways. We'll talk about that in a minute as to how we identify them. But, but there is chaos and violence when you push back on and challenge idols, especially idols in other people. Now, it's just as violent in you. It just doesn't feel the same way with you. And we see it in the theater, right? Paul has been pushing back on the entire idolatry of a culture. And you know what's happening? This is, I know this is a crazy idea, but Christians are making the culture different. They're affecting the economy of a city because their hearts have been transformed towards the gospel. An entire society is being altered. Isn't that wild? I mean, I know everyone's feeling like, I feel like everything's going the other direction. Like, Christians, where are we? What is, what is happening? Other than being angry, where, where are we? We had transformed, this, this break of idolatry had brought about renewal to a community, transformation, and that was pushing some buttons. And so you have an entire crowd that's all riled up that ends up running into this, this theater and says, this has got to stop. But they can't quite figure out exactly what's going on. I love the confusion, which by the way, chaos and violence, they almost always go around when we try pushing on idols in our own lives and especially in other people's lives. You can't quite make sense of it, but you know something is very, very wrong and it needs to stop right now. That's one of the ways you know. Idols are threatened, they bring about chaos and violence. So the question is, what is our version of great as Artemis of the Ephesians? What is our version of that? Now, let's just be honest, an hour and a half long service is a bit much. I can't imagine us all chanting for two hours the same thing. I don't know if they changed the tune, but, but can I just say, that's commitment. That's commitment to a system. That's saying this is the most important thing. You cannot mess with this or everything falls apart. Ah, that's good news. So what is our great Artemis of the Ephesians? What kinds of idols do we worship? Well, I have tried to help you a little bit. I've uh, adapted a, some of the work in the book here uh, to a handout that I've put on your, um, on your seats, which gives you uh, a great opportunity to begin doing some of the uprooting and undoing in you. But let's, let's talk a little bit about some. You can break down idolatry into really three main components. Uh, personal idols, religious idols, and, uh, and cultural idols. What I would say is I feel like by and large, and we, and we do that here too, we talk a lot about our cultural idols, right? We talk a lot about the, the pressure, the movement of what's going on in the culture out there. I'm not going to spend a ton of time doing that this morning, mostly because it wasn't the, um, it wasn't the gospel going and it wasn't the gospel going and looking at all the things and saying, this has got to change, you all are bad people. It was the gospel in people transforming a community and a culture. They weren't breaking down the establishment. They weren't like knocking down idol-making factories. They were becoming the kind of people who don't buy idols. Do you see the difference? The fragrance of Christ transforms a community. So we're going to talk a little bit about personal. We're going to talk a decent amount about religious idols because here we are, the church. And then, um, then we'll jump into some how do we dismantle all this. So uh, I have several different identified here. I have numbers. You guys don't have numbers. So um, one of the personal idols, probably one of the loudest ones, is, is money. Um, we just can't pretend like we're not a consumeristic culture. So that's very loud. This is, we're in direct connection with Ephesus in that way. We are all looking at Artemis going like, you're going to come through for me, right? And if I work hard enough and if I, I submit the right resumes and, and if I'm diligent enough, like you're going to come through for me, right? 
I have the kind of, let me see, it's the um, number 10 for me is, um, I have a certain level of wealth, financial freedom, and very nice possessions, which we're calling the materialism idolatry, which says, okay, I'm, I'm counting on you. Like, I'm counting on you. You've got to come through for me. I have to have a certain amount, otherwise things are not well. When I have a certain amount, all things are well. It's so common, I'm, I'm not going to belabor it. You know what it looks like. That cripples many of us in this room. Whether you have it or don't have it, by the way. Um, uh, another personal one, which is so broadly true amongst, is, is, is what I'll call romance, uh, romance idolatry. If, um, if you fall in love or if you're in love with somebody and you look to them and look to that person to say, your, goal, your love, your affection, your opinion of me is the thing that's going to determine whether or not life is okay with me. And that can be a spouse, that can be a girlfriend, that can be because of how your relationship with your spouse is, it's that other guy or that other girl at work. But if I could have that affection, that desire, then I would know that I'm somebody. I would know all is well. And so we serve it, we, we, we bow down to it, we do everything we can to, to receive it, whether in small doses or as much as possible. What's ironic, of course, with it is that um, no one can sustain, no individual person can sustain the weight of having put on them the fact that they're going to tell us who we are. It'll crush them. It'll destroy them. And that can play itself out an individual person or even just an ideal, an idea of someone treating and relating to your spouse primarily in light of how you think they should be. There's this ideal, there's this person out there that should have, I should be married to, and you're not them, as it turns out. Well, that's the same thing, right? It's some ideal out there, which, again, movies, television will help you try to create that. It's powerful, and you hold someone subject to it, and you end up crushing your spouse for not being the thing that's an ideal that God never said you were going to have. It has to be this way for my happiness. Life has meaning when that's the case, and life has no meaning when that's not the case. It must be so. And, and the third probably personal one that's particularly significant is children. Um, parents looking at their children and saying that they must be successful and is the same thing as a spouse, is you're going to crush your children with the expectation that they are going to justify you. If your child's job, if their reason, reason, if their reason for being is to try and be something for you so your life can matter, woe to them. Because they can't. They can't do it. And they're going to do one of two things. They're either going to become a really, really small person so that they can fit under your little globe, or they're going to say, forget you, and they are going to run as far away from you, and ironically, in both cases, your idol will die. Because no parent actually wants a really small child, a really small person. They want someone who will thrive, who will be a part of greater society. And if they run away and say, everything you wanted me to be about, I want to be about the opposite, then your heart will crush and die because it wasn't met either. Here's the crazy thing about idols. They don't actually give you the thing you want from it. They're full of promise and they don't deliver. They can't deliver. They're not made for it. Children are a good thing. A spouse is a good thing. Money is a good thing. But they're not made to give you significance and power and a sense of being. They, they can't do it. 
And yet we look at them and say, you must, you must. I'll do everything in my power to make it happen. Religious idols. Um, it's possible to say that I am okay. This is the this would be particularly in this in the category of the of idolatry of truth. That um, let me just say it this way: I am okay because of the rightness of my belief. I am okay. All is well because I believe rightly. I hold these things in exactitude as they should be. My theology is well lined up. I'm orthodox. Making an idol of doctrinal accuracy, of, of ministry success. Well, we've done it this way, and so this is what it means to be successful. Of moral rectitude. Which, of course, leads to just conflict, arrogance, self-righteousness, and the oppression of the views of anybody else that's not holding to the same truth, the ultimate truth of what can only be true because you hold it. Now, there is such a thing as truth, right? I, I'm not trying to dispute that. It's not like everything's relative. That's a, that's a cultural idol. That's not true. However, what I notice amongst what I'll call my peeps, all right, <laughs> is this idol, and I'm going to say amongst us, if you're excluded from this, it's okay. Just take a nap quick. We'll be back for you. But like, this is one of those we hold to pretty, pretty tightly, to be, to be right, to hold the right doctrinal places in the right. And here's what happens. This is what I'm noticing happening. One of the great gifts of God has been the opportunity to be hanging around Eagle's Nest and to be a part of uh, some of the conversations groups, many of which are going well, many of which have had great opportunities for some healthy heat, I believe. Um, but um, they're not exactly like us. What, right? What a crazy idea. And so um, this past week, I was, um, this is by illustration, but it's very personal to me right now. Um, this past week, I was, I was down on Tuesday, uh, was the 49th anniversary of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King's assassination. So uh, I got invited by Lee and some other folks to a group, with a group of pastors, and we headed down to uh, Ebenezer Baptist Church and um, spent a couple hours with a cadre of pastors from all over Atlanta. Uh, Denise King, uh, Dr. King's daughter, was kind of the facilitator of all that. And, and there's a whole group of pastors, white and black. And um, it, was, it, was a, it was a pretty cool gathering. What I did realize pretty quickly, though, is like we're all the same. I mean, not only are we of different race, but, but we're not the same. We're not holding the same content. There's some people in there that I'm like, oh, like you're legit theology, um, uh, prosperity, gospel. I, I know you. I've, I've actually seen you on TV. Like, I, you know, like, I, I know what you hold. I know. And you're over, and you're over here and you hold this. Like, uh, you were actually, I think he, this guy, he was the leader of the NAACP, president of the NAACP. Is that, what is that going to look like? So, um, and here we are, all Christians talking about what it means to do something significant in the city, to bring about the kind of change within the church. Um, and then we all took communion together. And um, I realized pretty quickly two things. One, I'm, I'm one of the more conservative people in the room. And two, I'm going like, I think I'm better than all of you also because of that. I felt, I felt better. I felt like this is a great thing. But I'm also right. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? I'm more. I'm more right. 
And what's amazing is this, is that it clouded my ability to actually be a part of, and a better way of saying, to actually love the men and women that were a part of that gathering. Because I was like this. My primary disposition was like, I must be right first. And I must make sure you all know that I'm right and, and that I hold these things and I do not, I, I'm not going to compromise on any of those things. And that, that's the most important thing. And so everything is like Heisman, you know, like you can't touch me. Like you, I, that's the biggest, I got to be away from at least enough distance that I can maintain some integrity. And you know, all I, all I know is God just was going like, you do understand what's happening, right? Like you're getting triggered. You're, you're, your entire reality is being thrown by what you're experiencing because you have to have this. Like, took a picture with Andrew Young. Um, he spoke for about an hour and a half. Fascinating dude. My goodness. Senator and mayor of Atlanta. Uh, great storyteller. Um, and, I, and I had this moment where I'm like, I mean, he's the guy who got put Carter in office. I mean, he's one of the main guys who contributed to getting, you know, Jimmy Carter in office. And I, and I know my Republican friends, you know? Like, I mean, like, and I'm like, am I allowed to take a picture with him? <laughs> I mean, I'm seriously. Like, am I, am, I, am I allowed? Like, is this... When we get down to Ebenezer, um, I'm in the car with Lee and, and Cameron, and um, uh, an African-American man comes to the fence of the, of the, of the, um, of the, of the church and uh, look, probably has some mental uh, issues also, had a hard time speaking, and, and he asked to roll down the window, and we were just talking in the car because we were a little early. And he said, um, and he's like, roll down the window. He's like, and he just he asked for some, for some money. And like without blinking, Lee just pulled out his wallet, pulled out 10 bucks, gave it to Cameron. Cameron ran around, handed it to the guy through the fence. Guys, God bless you. You know, McCrespy cared, kind to you. And, and I sat there, and you know what I thought? Well, how's this guy going to use this money? Right? I, I assume I'm not alone in that, right? That was my first thought. I was like, is this, a good, is this good stewardship? Is it... Um, have we thought about this rightly? I don't have my wallet, so that made it, maybe that's why I, I went there first, you know. But I was, I was struck by the fact that that's not where I need to repent. It would be far greater repentance. It would be far more of a dismantling of an idol for me to be able to say, you know what? I'm not going to be primarily concerned about that. I'm going to be primarily concerned about becoming the kind of person who's generous without trying to ask questions first. Because that's where I need to repent far more than the other. And that could be, obviously, that plays itself out in a political context. and Being right and, and, and holding so tightly to the truth as a means of excluding connectivity and primarily excluding love and engagement I would never have said that about myself. God was very kind this week to just put moment after moment after moment. We become what, um, in those moments, we become what uh, Proverbs calls scoffers. I know I'm okay because I'm right and so I can make light of or make jokes at the expense of. I become a scoffer, a mocker, which is actually the Proverbs calls a fool. And this is, the, this is the thing that struck me. This is where God met me in this moment. Uh, he took me to James chapter 1, verse 27. 
He said, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself from being contaminated by the world. Man, I am like a master's degree guy in number two. Don't be contaminated by the world. Live holy lives. Live holy lives. By the way, live holy lives before God. But to care for widows and orphans in their distress, well, I don't know. How are we going to do that? Like, what's the plan? Is it going to be effective? Is it going to... Now, listen, I've read When Helping Hurts, and all, I, I, I'm, I'm not... There's, there, is a, there is a really good and important process in how we think about how we care for the poor. Those are all real... Truth. That's not where we begin, though. And as a church, in general, as my peeps, like, I think we could use a little less of the second and a little bit more of the first. It even struck me this week as I wrestled with uh, the gospel, um, the uh, prosperity gospel thing. Um, I was talking to Joel earlier this week, and I said, you know, it's funny what I realized is that we actually are all prosperity gospel people, which, again, I don't, I think it's bad theology. I think it's dangerous, all that. But we're all prosperity gospel. You know that? Every single person in this room is and has on the continuum of believing the prosperity gospel. You know how I know? Well, one, I know my own heart, but two, I've talked to many of you. And when you're doing well with God, you, you kind of hope, maybe even expect that God's going to come through for you. When you're more obedient, when you're a little holier, when you spent time in the word, whatever your criteria is for how God will be pleased with you when you've given a certain amount, sacrificed a certain amount, served a certain amount, you kind of expect God to come through for you a little more, don't you? Just a little, maybe, I mean, not a ton. You, I mean, you, we are theologically accurate, right? We understand that God cannot be pleased by just idols and serve, serving, I mean, and, and sacrificing but that is a theology that is of the heart, not of the mind, right? And I know in the mind, but I don't live out in the heart. I am educated far beyond my obedience, um, as Jay often says. And so, on the continuum, I'm on the continuum. And therefore, what does that mean for me as I look to men and women who are on a different place in that continuum? And how do I first move in love and second, move in the opportunity to come alongside and be a part of so as to bring about maybe areas of understanding that would be different. Maybe that's some of the offering that we would have, that I would have. But not to begin there so that my idol can be cared for, protected, and saved. Do you, do you see the difference? I don't know what that looks like for you exactly, but I know it's a true thing for me, and I know it's a true thing for us as a church. Uh, I told you I wouldn't leave you alone. So uh, if uh, the other thing, and I think this is really significant for us, uh, is the, um, the idol of comfort. Uh, up here it says, um, I think it's the third one down, it says, I have this kind of pleasure experience uh, or a particular quality of life, and it's called comfort idolatry. Uh, I, th I, would, I would probably expand that a little bit more. But um, here is, um, as a people, us people, we like to be comfortable well, we're middle class anyway, so we kind of have a sense of what the middle looks like. But, but we like to have things be a certain way and not be uncomfortable relationally, not be uncomfortable um, particularly relationally with other people. Uh, many of us, the last thing we want to do is be the kind of people who are going to, like, preach at people. Millennials, like, and Xers, we're all like, whoa, 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 take two steps back from that. 
And you know, when we did our survey, this is fascinating, by the way, this is one of those like hidden things. When we did our survey, one of the things we found is that uh, millennials are the least likely to want to invite someone to church or to have them be a part of. And uh, the boomers, y'all boomers folks, you're the ones who, um, who are like, yeah, sure, bring them along, oh, whatever. And, and, and some of that makes all the sense in the world, right? And I'm not trying to knock you, this is not a, like a bash millennials, Xers are so screwed up. We, we have the, both, the bad parts of both sides. So we're just, we're just a lot of trouble. Um, but... But there's just this sense of like, I'm not going to risk my relational equity for the sake of Christ. I'm just not gonna. Now, that doesn't mean I won't write a check for something. That doesn't mean I won't participate in some way, in some kind of, I mean, social, social elements are totally fine. But I will not open my mouth to risk relationally with someone, to tell them and invite them towards the light and life of Christ. I just won't. Guys, we don't. That's some of our religious idolatry is we will not be uncomfortable the cost of that is too great. We can't. I mean, what if you invited someone today and I'm talking about this? <laughs> right? How will they hear unless someone preaches? That doesn't have to be from the front with a microphone. But how will they hear unless we preach? Um. We don't baptize new converts, hardly at all. In the seven years I've been here, probably, I don't know, three, maybe four. That's not, that's not okay. Something's broken. And, 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 I, and it begins here. I'm not, I'm not trying to throw stones here. I'm saying something's not okay when we're more committed to making sure we don't break out and, and, and say the wrong thing or have our neighbor be like crazy Christian people next door. I mean, that's the most important thing. And, and this is the thing that even hanging around Brian Oaks, you know, who's planting a church in Roswell, like the guy has nobody at his church. So what's he going to do? He talks to everyone. <laughs> we're at lunch and he's like, I mean, he's like everyone's best friend by the time we're leaving lunch. I'm like, dude, we're trying to have a conversation. What are you doing? You know? But his entire, his entire orbit is thinking through what does it look like for people who don't know Jesus to know Jesus. And, and, and all I know is this, like, and we're heading towards this. He's the only thing. He's the only hope. He's the only life. And I, f I fear for us. I fear that we are going to be the kind of people who are primarily looking and saying, like, am I being good? Am I being right? Am I being true? Uh, am I being faithful even? Um, but we're not courageous people. And probably because we're not free. We're not, we're, not, we're not as free. And I would love for that to be different. I was the pastor this week. Um, he was, he's from Memphis, and he was down for this event. And, um, and he was talking about, like, that last weekend they baptized 40 people. And I just, I wanted to cry. Because, not, praise God, you know, right? Praise, I mean, I was like, that's amazing, dude. What I wanted to cry about is like, I know what that does in the, light, in our, in the life and the heart of a believer. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like when you get to hear the story of someone, like I once was dead and now I'm alive. Like you wouldn't believe this used to be true for me. Now this is true for me. Like these things that used to consume my life, like believe it or not, like I, I feel like God's getting near and he's, and he's starting to undo some things. Like is that not some of the most life-giving elements of what it means to be a Christian? I don't know. I, I, all week long I've been like, I... I don't want to talk about this, but we must. We must. We have an idolatry of comfort, and we're not willing to risk. And all I know is this. 
is that for every idol of our hearts, God risked everything in sending his son for us. Everything. It cost him everything. And so it's not, again, the gospel doesn't say, well, he did a bunch of stuff for you, so now you owe him. That's not what the gospel says. It says, in light of the fact that he's given you everything, in light of the fact that he toppled every possible idol that would raise itself up against him, he's toppled it by saying, all these, every idol is trying to tell me, you matter, you're going to be okay, everything's going to be fine. When he came and he said, I tell you you're okay. I am the final voice about who you are. I am the final voice about what makes you matter. I am the one who's going to care for you when no one else will care for you. And in the end, I am the one who will bring you towards real life all the way through. That's what he's, tell, that, that's what he's offered us. And that's what we dethrone, that's what we exchange for, for these secondary things that they don't satisfy. They don't, they don't work. Here's, um, here's what I know. The only way we will dismantle idols, the only way, is when we see him more precious than them. It's the only way, by the way. No amount of guilt. If you're feeling guilty right now, like, it's not going to work. So, I mean, you, I mean, you can go if you want. But it's just not going to work. You're not going to love people around you because you feel guilty. Or it's just going to be an exchange. Help me feel better so I don't feel guilty. Nobody wants that. No. Only when we see him as most precious, as most beautiful, as the thing that's going to satisfy our hearts. And because we build our idols over a lifetime and because they are powerful and they will rage against you, because of that, it must be all the time. There must be this constant regularity of how I look and gaze on him. And the way in which he tells us to do so is to be able to gaze on him and what he's done for you on the cross. Do you know that's what Paul points to every single time? He didn't point to anything else. He basically says, oh, you want to change? Oh, the cross. Oh, you, you, you want something, idolatry is killing you? Yeah, the cross. Every time. Do you know why? It's because you got nowhere else to go. As you perceive and see him there, it's like gazing at the true reality of God. He is the image of Christ. He is the image of God, the very reflection of his nature. And so as we gaze at him, as we gave himself giving himself for us, no one can take anything from you. You embarrass yourself with your neighbor talking all Christian-like and everything, and you know what's going to happen? Like God's going to take care of you. He's going to give you courage. He's going to give you life. That's what he's going to do. Um... I really identify with Tim when he talks about his relationship with Kathy. Um, Becky and I have been married 25 years now, and we've gone through a lot of messy stuff. But, um, but she is like, she is the one I am most likely to try and turn into an idol. I mean, it just it happens. It happens more often than it should. And, but here's the thing, and this is a question, I think, I think it was Madeline Spurgeon that asked the question, who, if she is my idol, when she is in a coffin, who is going to comfort me? I mean, I read that and I just cried this week. Because, because unless the one who has already died for me can comfort me and give me hope and endurance and is not in a coffin instead, or vice versa, then I will have no hope and I will be destroyed by my idol. I want to be free from that. 
I want the gospel to have that kind of effect on my life. I want, I want to be a different man. And I, and I believe because of the spirit of God and those of you who claim Christ that you want that too. I'm convinced of it. We get to agree with him on what he's already done and then ask him to bring about that which he's already done into us so that it can have the kind of effect that changes a community. We're just a few folks, just a handful of folks. Paul got there all by himself and a whole entire community changed in three years. I don't know what that means and looks like, but I would love to be a part of that. And I'd love to do it with you guys. Um, so by the grace of God, may that be so. And may we begin here every single time, remembering that without this, like we don't have a chance. We don't have a chance. Pray with me. Father, without you, there is no hope. Oh, but with you, with you, there is complete and total assurance that it is not only well with our soul, but that you are going to make things beautiful and perfect and true because of what you've already accomplished on the cross. And so what we ask for now is, is for a vision of that, a hope of that, a clarity of that, and a certainty in our hearts that we can't muster, but only you can put there, that will allow that to begin to be effusive in our lives, in our relationships. Humble us because of your son. Strengthen us and give us courage because of your son that your name may be glorified, that your kingdom may come on earth as it is in heaven, and that we may be satisfied in ways that no puny idol could even get close to. Ah, that would delight you, I know. Pray this in Christ, our Savior, our Redeemer. Amen. Loved ones, if you belong to Christ Jesus, this is your meal. This is your remembrance moment of what is true for you so that all of the dismantling of the idols that need to happen can happen in light of this. So come forward, receive the elements, and be, be changed by Christ.